Welcome to the Birth Control and Judaism panel on the Francisco Show as part of JewishCoffeeHouse.com. There has been so much anxiety around this topic for me just coming on today. I was really excited for the past few hours. And I'd like to introduce our panelists to you. We have Rabbi Scott Khan joining us, the founder of JewishCoffeeHouse.com, as well as co-host of Intimate Judaism, together with sex therapist Tali Rosenbaum. Welcome. And then we have Rebetzin Rifki Frondlich from Montreal, who happens to be a Yoetzer Alacha. I'm so excited to have her on as well to give the more conservative perspective and also the in the know as a Rebetzin for so many years, as someone who knows what women are actually doing and not the women who are going for help, for professional help. So we're going to have so many different perspectives here, and I'm excited to dive in. First, I'd like to say we're sending prayers to the people in Israel today and yesterday. It's been crazy, and I know we're doing this panel, but I just want to send our love and hold some space and pray to Hashem that this ends really soon and everyone stays safe. I'd also like to make a disclaimer that there will be some talk around not wanting children or other types of things that can be triggered to anyone who is trying to conceive or who has been suffering from infertility or pregnancy loss. And this topic may not be available to you today, and that's okay. However, we will be discussing topics that are very important. The topic of birth control is probably one of the hot topics because babies is something either people really want or people really don't want. There's no medium. There's no spectrum here. It's either you're all in or you're all out. So this is highly sensitive. And I'd like to mention that this was inspired by the work of Melinda Gates. Her life's mission is to bring birth control to women in the third world countries. And when I was thinking about women who don't have access to birth control, I was thinking of Jewish Orthodox women, some who are uneducated or do not know enough, who don't feel empowered enough to ask or make decisions for themselves. So I decided this was a very important topic to bring up and have in a very respectful and well-educated and well-represented manner. So with all respect to be had. Welcome to this panel. So we'll jump right in and we'll go in with the most aggressive question. Take this with a grain of salt or not, but birth control is the only case that I heard of in Jewish law that is allowed only if given a heter by a rabbi. This is allowed, but only if you ask a rabbi for permission. So this may seem like a power grab by the Rabbanim. What is this? And we'll start with Rabbi Scott here as our rabbinic representative here. What do you have to say on this topic? Okay, well, first of all, thank you very much for having me and all of us. It's, uh, it's a pleasure to be with you, Francisca. And we've worked together in the past, so uh, it's nice to be on the same panel. So the first thing I would say is that that's not entirely true, meaning there are other instances in Jewish law where you are required to get the approval of somebody else I'll give you, just simply, if you go to court, a bait din, there are situations where a bait din has to rule in a certain way. You can't decide if you're in an argument with somebody else, you must go to a bait din. Or on the other side, birth control itself isn't inherently some magic thing that the rabbi decides, oh, I say you can do this and somehow that becomes the halacha. It's not really like that. It is true that it is brought down in sources that a person shouldn't decide or a couple shouldn't decide these questions on their own. But the reason is not because the rabbi has the ability to create some sort of reality, that by his saying that this is mutar or asur, allowed or forbidden, that becomes the halakha. That's not it at all. It's simply that there are so many different factors involved. There are so many different details that matter in terms of determining whether or not birth control is allowed or permitted in a certain situation that it would be foolhardy for a couple who has an emotional investment, as you said at the beginning correctly, people are all in in one direction or the other. They have clearly an etiyah, decision, uh, they have a tendency towards one side or the other. And if they're asking for birth control, that tendency is clear which side. Then if they don't want to have children at all or now – they can't be objective about it, or at least it's very unlikely. So Halakha says, for you to do that, to go and make your own decision when you're probably not going to be objective, along with the fact that the details are so 
detailed, there's so many of them, before making that determination that it simply would be foolish not to ask somebody who can think of all the different details and put it together for you and tie it up. That said, if a person, or I keep saying a person, it's really a couple, obviously this is a decision that a man and woman should make together, a married couple, but if the couple decides that the case is cut and dry, and an example that Rabbi Lezer Malamed from Harbracha here in Israel gives is, for example, if they just had a baby and they want to take birth control for the first nine months, that is pretty clearly allowed. So because of that, it, since it's pretty obvious, there's no need to go to a rabbi. I just, just don't agree with the idea that it inherently is something where the rabbi can determine something. Let me give you just one more example. I don't want to take too much time. But for example, with tzara'at, what's like leprosy, that in the times of the Gemara, or actually earlier on, the times of Tanakh, then the Kohen himself actually makes the reality. By the Kohen declaring it is Tameh or Tahor, that actually sort of creates a reality. That's not the role of a rabbi. The rabbi doesn't do that. And his saying it is one thing or another doesn't make it so. He's simply somebody, hopefully in this situation, and as far as I'm concerned, it could be a U.S. halacha equally. It's not a rabbi. It's just somebody who's versed in the halachot. And a rabbi who's not versed in the halachot can't do it either. Somebody who knows these things simply has the ability to give you a better idea of what's happening rather than a couple deciding it on their own. Thank you. Rifki, would you like to add? I would just echo Rabbi Khan's sentiments very much that I think coming at this from the most accurate perspective includes that any competent halachic authority um, is going to approach this with sensitivity, is not looking to withhold this you know, treasured permission that this couple is seeking. I think in general, my experience has been when couples have been seeking permission to use birth control that my experience, I should say from, you know, the, the conversations that I have, I generally don't hear from couples who are looking for permission to use birth control. These are couples who are using birth control and they want to discuss what are the options within that, within the decision that they've made, they would like to know how can they do this while maintaining their fidelity to halacha, to Jewish law. And while it may be exactly like Rabbi Khan is saying that the ideal would be that a couple discusses, has a meaningful, deep conversation with their rabbinic mentor, with their rabbi or their yoetzet, Yes, we hope that that conversation is happening and we hope that the rabbi is taking into account and helping the couple themselves understand why it is that they're seeking this reprieve, so to speak, from having children, it, is that it's it's a conversation as opposed to, you know, someone withholding this, this secret key to unlocking the, you know, the pills that are being kept in some vault somewhere. God forbid, I, I really don't think that that's what's intended. And that while yes, the conversation should happen, I think very often the conversation doesn't happen. So I can really share a reflection based on, like I said, my experience and conversations that I've had primarily with women. I don't usually speak to couples, but primarily with women. And the couple has already had that conversation. Sometimes there's a situation where they're not on the same page. And I'd like to be able to help the woman process why she's in one place and her husband is in another. But in general, I don't know that that conversation is happening so often. I think that the couples who know what they need for whatever the reasons might be, their mental health, the physical health, financial situations, other stress that is going on in, in a family or in a couple's life. There are so many factors here. And very often the couples are making the decisions on their own within a certain world that let's say I would speak to, acknowledging that there is a whole other world of couples that I don't know how they're going about getting their access to birth control. But I could tell you from the not nearly as many conversations as I've had in within, I would say the modern Orthodox world, but to the right of the modern Orthodox world is a tremendous area of growth. There has been a lot of openness to this conversation in the more right-wing world. Um, and I say this not just in the yeshiva world, but in the Hasidish world as well, where I've had a number of conversations with people where there is a new reality that has, I think we've been awakened to, thank God, that takes all of these factors into account. And so it's I'm hoping we're moving in the right direction where couples are being given information and are being empowered to have these conversations and then make their decisions, hopefully with the guidelines of halacha. Thank you, Tali. Well, I would add maybe something from a psychological perspective, but I really appreciate, first of all, thanks for having me. Um, and uh, I appreciate hearing the voices of, uh, of uh, Rabbi Khan and uh, Yoetzit uh, Rifki. Um, Look, I think that any woman who feels that uh, that there's a rabbinic power grab 
um, is feeling oppressed. And I don't think that uh, there's necessarily um, a power struggle happening between a rabbi to control the woman. I think that there is a a perception that she's feeling controlled in her life and that that needs to be addressed. Um, I think that women who don't want to feel controlled and who feel like they have uh, the power to do so and the autonomy to do so won't necessarily choose to ask. And they might, you know, I think there's a deeper issue if they have the ability to communicate with their partners and to decide together or to even find, I mean, there are modern Orthodox rabbis who I have heard say, look, you have a mitzvah of pruervu and you should have a boy and you should have a girl. And that what fulfill, that is what fulfills the mitzvah, how you decide to do that and when and in what, at, you know, in what frequency is really up to you to decide. I've heard that. And I think that we can look all the way to the other end of the spectrum. And I think that's what you were talking about, about women who do feel like they don't have autonomy or they are controlled or that, um, you know, they, they don't really have choices. Um, first of all, I agree with Rifki that that is definitely changing. Um, I think that one of the biggest changes is that it, it used to be even 10, five, five years ago, that um, in order to get a heter for birth control, you would have to demonstrate some sort of mental distress. And, you know, it's kind of like trying to get out of the Israeli army with Kaban, you know, which is, which means that, you know, if you can, if you can demonstrate that you have some sort of mental illness, then you can get out of the army. And it's kind of the same. I think that that's, I think that now uh, there's less pressure on women to, because for a woman to come to a rabbi and say, look, I can't handle it. That's a huge, um, uh, that's a huge uh, insult to her identity. That I mean, the idea in, in Haredi society, women want to handle it. That's part of their identity is to be able to handle it. So when they have to say, if they can't, they can't say, well, I'm actually like in a two-year program right now and I want to graduate um, or, you know, whatever it is that might sound legitimate in the, in the world, um, in their society, that wouldn't necessarily be legitimate. So they would have to indicate that um, they have too much depression or anxiety, and then they get the head tear. So hopefully that's changing so that women don't have to kind of deal with um, having to take on that identity um, in order to get the head tear. Okay. Thank you so much. I would think we should reverse a little bit now that we addressed the big elephant here. What are the issues or the requirements to access birth control? I don't mind starting, but I'm not going to answer the question, not because I'm trying to avoid it, but I'm afraid that if I were to say these are those elements which you must have or must not have, according to halacha, that people are going to this paskin based on that. And in general, I don't want people to rule based on anything I say on a podcast because generally halacha is very personal, how it works. And that's certainly true in a case like this. I can tell you some of the basic ideas that are involved. Um, so one of them is what Tali just mentioned, the requirement of pruervu, which by Torah law is we paskin that it means a boy and a girl, each of whom themselves can have children. And by rabbinic law, there's an additional requirement to have more children. Now, how that's defined, different people say different things. Uh, the two basic ways of looking at it, and they could both be true, is um, some say, for example, that one should have two girls and two boys, and some say you should have as many as you possibly can, and this could both be true. This could both be part of the rabbinic requirement. So these all have to be taken into account when deciding. If a couple does not have children, then that would be very different than if they already fulfilled the biblical requirement, which would again be different if they already fulfilled the rabbinic requirement of having, let's say, four or five children, depending on whom you ask. So that's one issue that has to be taken into account. Another one would be all sorts of things that matter, whether it's financial distress, emotional distress, the uh, uh, physical distress, anything could be possibly a mitigating factor. Or for example, if uh, a couple, uh, the, the wife, for example, is in medical school, and by her having children at a certain stage of her life, she'll be forced to drop out because she won't be able to do both. That's an example where some rabbis or some Yawatot Halacha might say in this situation, um, it's permissible to use birth control for a certain amount of time. Another thing might be whether how long we're talking about. Is it indefinite or is it for six months? Is it for a year? Is it for two years? And these times are not 
totally random. They're actually based on very specific times that are outlined in halachic sources. For example, um, there's a, something called Misfat Ona, which is the uh, let's call it the required time that a husband and wife are supposed to be intimate, or more specifically, that the husband is required to be intimate with his wife, assuming she wants him to be. And the longest period of time that halacha rep- recognizes for that for husband and wife is once every six months for people who work at sea, who are out sailing the seas. So based on that, some people will say, okay, there's a six-month a number. In addition to that, there's the idea that after you have a child, um, it seems that in in, uh, in times of Gemara, people used to nurse, women would nurse for two years on average, and that would be a form of birth control. So some people say after having a child, two years is an amount of time. Other people say, as I mentioned before, nine months or a year after having a child. There's so many different factors involved. So I can't say in the following situations, one can take birth control. It's not that simple, but there are numerous factors that have to be weighed together. And then, of course, finally, is the factor once uh, once you can once you determine that birth control is permitted in a certain situation, the question is what form of birth control, and there are all sorts of questions about that as well. So, for example, a condom is considered uh, one of the least likely to be given a heter for to be given permission. On the other hand, um, an IUD or a diaphragm, it's more likely, or a pill. These all have various issues, both halachically, emotionally, physically, that have to be taken into account. But that's another question that has to be asked as well. So there, I can't give an answer about when one can use it, but I can say these are some of the factors that a posek or a or anybody else involved in the decision should take into account. Wonderful. Okay, so you mentioned Jewish families being big, and if you go into, you know, what can you do naturally until you are in mental distress and then you need access to birth control. So how do we preserve our Jewish hashkafa by encouraging big families versus planning a family around a career perhaps or anything else that's going around in somebody's life. Well, no, I mean the only thing I would say about that is I don't I don't know that the halacha necessarily promotes big families. I think that's a social construct. I think that you know a lot of that is uh you know I don't I don't think that you know women were meant necessarily to have 12 children. Um, I don't know that we see that from our sources. Some people may think six children is a very large family. So my question is, is this something everyone should naturally just try to have a big family unless they are unable to do that and then have to look for answers or help? Is this bedieved or lechatrila? Right. I, I think I, I understand your question. Your question is kind of like, shouldn't, should every woman kind of do her hishtadlus by, you know, having as many kids as she can until it's like too much and then ask for the heter rather than come in with this idea of, I want four kids. Right. Is this a Jewish principle or idea in general? I can say something about it just in terms of what Rabbi Malamed said. I was reading something that he wrote today, and he said that it's worth, and I, I sort of alluded to this before, he said it's worth looking at the rabbinic mitzvah in two separate stages. The rabbinic mitzvah, which is based on a pasuk in Kohelet, of don't stop, of having more children, he said really has two different elements. There's the first element, which is, as I said, four or five children, or as you said, two and one, whatever it is, whatever the number is, that's up for debate. And then that would be what he would say, in Rav Malamud's words, is the rabbinic requirement. The same way there's a biblical requirement for pruravu, a boy and a girl, there's a rabbinic requirement to double that, if you want to say that, um, or, or some permutation of that. But then there's an additional, not requirement, but almost like if you do it, it's a mitzvah, but there's no requirement to do more. So that would mean, for example, once the person has in this example, two boys and two girls, if they have more children, you are mekayem a mitzvah, but it's not a chiyuv, it's not an obligation. So that's why, for example, I saw that um, Rabbi Yehuda Hankins, that's all, he just died recently, from Nishmat, I believe, I don't want to quote, but I believe he says that in his, uh, his piece Tshuva, that once a couple has two boys and two girls, then they're allowed to take birth control the kind, assuming it's the kind that's permitted, as I said, not a condom necessarily, but a form of birth control, uh, presumably without that much restriction. Um, if they don't, they can be mekayim and mitzvah, but it's not necessarily that there's any problem with not doing that once they have that certain number. So on the halachic level, I think that's the way to look at it. But at, halacha is obviously only one piece of a bigger puzzle. I don't want to pretend otherwise. Right. Rifki, would you like to add anything? Sure. Thank you. And thank you again for having me. I didn't I didn't give you my thanks when I first spoke. So I would just add that from the 
again, from my conversations with women, I think what I hear is that inherently there is something cultural, as Tali said, there is something about our society that really values big families. Whether you grew up in one or you had a friend who was part of a big family, there was something, there, there, there's a positive vibe around this idea that Jewish families equal big families. And like you said, Francisca, I think so accurately, for some people that means four. Four is a huge number. If you grew up alone or with one sibling, the idea of having four children is, is quite significant. That's a big leap. And similarly, if you grew up with three or four and you are considering having a family of six, seven, or eight. So, you know, there, there's a lot of, of subjectivity, I think, in this conversation that I think is important to note. The other thing I would mention is that I hear from women all the time who know that they've hit their limit, whether it is because they're before the point of feeling emotional or mental distress, they are feeling like their plates are full, they can't do anymore, and they're feeling not great about it. They are feeling... I don't know if I would call it guilty because it's not its not keeping them from functioning. In other words, it's not a heavy heaviness, but every once in a while, they get this feeling of like, maybe I could have done more. Maybe I should have done more. I wonder, is it okay that we say that we're done? And in a lot of those conversations, I have tried to share with them some of the wisdom that I've learned from some of my teachers, primarily Rabbi Alman, Rabbi Kenneth Alman. And one of the things that he shared with me is he said, please tell women who are feeling this way that they should know that part of the mitzvah, yes, of Puravu and right, that couples should continue to have children so long as they're able, but that the continuation of that mitzvah is actually raising the children that you have been blessed with. And that the mitzvah doesn't stop, as we all know, having children doesn't stop in the delivery room, right? That is just the beginning. And so the process of raising those children, which doesn't even stop when those children become parents, from what our parents have told us, then that in and of itself, people should feel like they are still involved in fulfilling this commandment, that this is very much part of their daily life, also part of their daily struggle, but not to feel like, check, I did my job and now it's over. We all know that's not the reality. So that to sort of give couples the space to feel as though they have not shirked some kind of responsibility, what they have and what they have been blessed with, whether it was by choice or not by choice necessarily, but what they have is a continuing commitment to raise those children. And that is part of what the Torah and what the rabbis, what Chazal really want from us. Thank you. So I'll get a little personal here and say that the only time I guess it would be appropriate to talk about this topic is maybe in seminary and then with a college teacher. And honestly, I am learning so many new things right now today that I just uh, had to guide myself in a way all this time because there was no formal education around this and there was nowhere for me to get the information I needed. And with this, I'll ask, how do we give women like me and everyone else autonomy and a voice over their bodies? How do we talk about these issues more and better so couples and women are more educated when they get married or when they're considering growing a family? Yeah, I love the question. And I think that it has, um, it's, 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 it's a lot more than about birth control. It's about um, the development of a relationship with your body and with your health, with your reproductive health, which includes knowledge as well as um, conversation, experiencing, talking about the body, um, and not waiting until Kala classes to discover your own anatomy and physiology. Um, the whole conversation about uh, female reproduction, or you know, even if it's not even necessarily about reproduction, but it's reproductive health. Um, should start when, when you know, when a girl is a girl and she gets her period. And when she's a teenager, she needs to learn to track her periods and track her cycle so that she is in touch with her body, so that she has awareness, awareness of her fertility. And in fact, there's a method called the fertility awareness method, which is really not just about using a birth control method, but about being aware of your own body. So this this autonomy has to do with um, being able to ask yourself a lot of questions. And this might even have some implications um, for Rifke's field um, because 
uh, I think there, it even says somewhere that women today don't really know if they feel something, whether what they're feeling. And, you know, we, we've gone so away from our bodies. And I think that this is really an indication that we are the experts. Women are the experts on their bodies. And, uh, you know, the idea of even being able to, first of all, have women who can help with the piske uh, halacha to determine, make determinations, but also learn to make our own determinations. Um, and because we know our bodies and we know how they work and we know what to expect and what to predict. So this also will then um, prevent the what you said in the beginning, people either very much want to be pregnant or they want to prevent a pregnancy. Well, there's also another category. Um, well, there's pregnant already, but the other category is that they didn't really even think about it. So many women, so many women that I meet in my therapy um, uh, setting are women that got married and within boom, a month were pregnant because they just, nobody told them, they didn't think about it, they didn't know, there was no conversation. Um, and they don't, you know, and they're trying to navigate having a body together with checking themselves and, you know, suddenly they're pregnant, they're not feeling well, and they're trying to navigate sexuality with another person. Um, there's just so much that happens and it's overwhelming because until, you know, most Orthodox young women um, will not necessarily have had any uh, sexual experience or any kind of knowledge of that area of their body. Many of women have not ever used tampons. And so the whole idea of suddenly getting married, checking yourself, um, it, it's like learning a whole new subject. And I think that if we began the develop with the developmental process to um, encourage uh, knowledge of our reproductive and our sexual health, uh, that would, I think that that autonomy that women would feel together with um, their spiritual sense of self, which respects the halakha and will ask the appropriate questions. You know, we have to look at everything together. It's many variables at once. There's the desire for autonomy, there's the de desire to get things right, there's the desire for good um, uh, uh, zugiyut, you know, for the couple to get along and to be on the same page. So these are all factors. And I think that having, uh, beginning way before uh, hadrachat uh, kala is, is really the way to, is, is really the direction. Rifki, would you like to add? I would. Thank you. <laughs> I would say that very much along the lines of what Tali is saying, that in an ideal and perfect world, education about a woman, the young woman's anatomy begins when she's very young, even before she gets her period, right? Most, most mothers, based on their own experience with their mother, have a good sense of when that conversation should start. My mother told me and it was too late, or my mother told me, and I don't like the way that she told me. So many of us, and not that our mothers, including ourselves, thank God our mothers, we're doing the best we can. So we'll just put that out there. That's the disclaimer. Everyone's trying their best. But that being said, we all perhaps are developing our own ways that we want to speak to our children. Um, just recently, um, Nishmat put on an incredible health and halacha conference where this topic was addressed several times, how to talk to our children about their bodies, about sexuality, all of those things, which I think most parents feel like they are lacking tools. It's out there now. There is much more available to give us the vocabulary to speak to our children. And so ideally, this conversation starts very young, a comfort with the body, a knowledge of the body, an awe of the body, of how incredible it is and the potential that it has. Um, you know, having had these conversations with my own children and talked to some other parents about how to have these conversations with their kids, the messages our children are getting, they're getting messages and they're getting them from so many different places. What an opportunity for us as parents to set them on a road towards a healthy relationship, a healthy level of respect of, and of course, knowledge of their body. So that's, I think, the first thing. The second thing is, as I mentioned, with things like the Health and Halacha Conference and also the development of curriculum throughout many Jewish day schools that I am aware of, of, of bringing this into a conversation where it doesn't all have to be about sex. The conversation is very much before we get to the conversations that I think very often happen in 11th and 12th grade classrooms, there are conversations that really could, and I think 
should be and I think are happening in a lot of classrooms in the young middle school age where we're trying to teach young men and young women, boys and girls, about not just information, but giving them this sense of awe, respect, and of course, appreciation for their bodies. And lastly, I think I would just add that the Torah itself is the greatest advocate for women to have knowledge of their bodies. The Pasuk is clear, and I've quoted it, I'm sure you've all heard it quoted so many times, the Safra la Shivas Yamin, that a woman is counting her own seven days. Nobody asks her for a note. Are you sure you counted? A woman goes to the mikvah and she comes home and tells her husband she went to the mikvah. He doesn't say to her, where's your proof that you went to the mikvah? The whole concept of family purity, the laws of Taras and Mishpacha are based on a concept of ne'emanus, that we believe women, we trust women, we empower women to know themselves and then to follow the halacha the way that it was the way that it was given to us. And this is, you know, forget all the Torah Shabbat Peh, but right there in the Psukim and the Torah, the idea of the Safra La, that a woman counts for herself, is very much Hashem's way of, of taking us by the hand and saying, this is your body, I've given it to you, take care of it and get to know it. Yeah, I'd like to add something. And first of all, I agree with what both Tali and Rifki said, this very important points. I'm going to make it a little bit larger, just very briefly. Um, and the first point is, first, I'm going to throw in a shameless plug for what Tali and I do in Intimate Judaism, because I think what we're really trying to do in our macro goal is to have more conversations and to allow people to realize that such conversations are not taboo. So in that sense, and we are going to have an episode about birth control as well at the beginning of next season. So it's important to note that what we're trying to do is not tell everyone what to do, but the fact that there are conversations to be had and that people have to be open to the fact that these these can take place. Someone asked me not that long ago, um, wouldn't it be better if everyone had these conversations with someone they know rather than a faceless couple of people behind a microphone, the answer is, of course, it would be better, but it's not happening. So if that would happen, that would be wonderful. Uh, but in the meantime, I guess we still have our jobs, so that's good too. Um, on the other hand, the other point I wanted to make is to take what Rifki said about autonomy and maybe even make it even stronger in a way that, I don't know if it's controversial, but this is how I see halacha. Because the question about how can a woman or anybody have autonomy when halacha demands that you keep things a certain way is, is obviously a bit of a paradox. There's no net real answer to that. Halakha says you must do the following thing. And if you don't want to do it, well, there's your problem, no matter what the halakha is. And obviously, in a case like birth control, that comes to the fore in a very direct way when talking about a woman's autonomy over her own body. So I think the answer that I feel, and I, it's based on something that Rav Soloveitchik Zetzal said, is um, it's based on, it, it really comes down to something that Tali and I have discussed in certain episodes about you know, are rabbis allowed in the bedroom, to put it in a, to use the metaphor? And as far as I'm concerned, the answer is, of course not. A husband and a wife go in that bedroom by themselves. God is there too, but that's it. And no one else goes in there. My job as a Hatan teacher, for example, is to tell the people that I teach, or any student that I teach, what the halacha says is required. And then it's up to the person whom I teach how he plans to implement that halacha. Now, I believe the halacha is binding. And I think that's how I hope everyone keeps it. When I teach it to them, I'm not saying you can go and compromise as much as you want. I'm not saying that. But I do recognize that the person has autonomy to decide what he's going to do with the information I give him. No one's coming with, uh, as you said, no one's asking for a note. No one uh, is going to send the police after you. My kids have a joke. We have a, a WhatsApp group called the Halacha Police. Uh, you know, if someone does, we're kidding around. There is no such thing as Halacha Police in the world nowadays. And that's a good thing. People have their own autonomy. And although a rabbi or a halacha or any sort of halachic authority is going to tell people this is what halacha demands, then the couple decides from then what we're going to do with that information. And that is autonomous. They, as I said, I think halacha is binding. But if that couple disagrees, that's between them and God. And I don't have any way to go in there. That's not my place to walk in past that door and say, you're doing this wrong. That's where my job ends. Their job begins to figure out what they're going to do with the information that I've provided. True. But once then you're taking the autonomy away, if... If there is the halacha, what did you call it? The halacha police in heaven, you know, when you go up to Shemaim, God is counting. So then the autonomy is lost because there is that accountability. Okay. I would say, to put it in theological terms, that's between the couple and God. That's for them to decide how they're going to deal with that with God. And I would say I'd ra- I would rather present the halacha accurately without twisting it into something that it's not, rather than give a flimsy heter that I don't really believe— and pretend that that's halacha. I'd rather the couple say, 
Halacha says this, but we don't feel we can follow that now. And how God and we work that out is between us and God. And you know what? I have no place to say how God judges that, because even though anyone who studied a certain topic can be an expert on that topic, how God relates to it beyond that really is outside of uh, of my expertise. And I think that's out of anybody's expertise. We can guess, and we have certain indications based on our sources. But ultimately, if the couple says, God, I'm going to compromise on that— who am I to say that God doesn't respect that because there's a good reason for it? I, I can't say. That's not for me to decide. So how uh, how it's going to be judged in Shemaim, that's really not a place for, I think, anyone to say, except for God himself, and how the couple decides they want to deal with that is up to them. Yeah. I'd like to address something Tali mentioned before. The third option of women just, or couples not thinking about it and ending up pregnant, you know, a month after getting married. So is this an issue or is this how we'd like the Jewish tradition to continue without that being a thought? Or is the education around having these conversations starting from a young age, ideally, giving the ideas and messages? It is a modern, modernized way of living. Oh, I'm getting married. Let me choose. Am I ready to have kids or am I not ready to have kids? This might sound anti-Jewish. It doesn't sound like it's ideal for us to raise the next generation of women who, by the time they're getting married, they're asking themselves, do they want to have kids right now yet? Or, you know, are they still in school? Or is it really ideal to have women become pregnant without thinking about it as soon as they get married because they have never been on birth control before? It's never been something they had to think about. It just seems like this conversation is anti how we have designed the communities to be. So by having these conversations, we are really fighting the hashkafos of our tradition and religion. I, I hear your question. I think that it's a very, very real, real question that cuts across a lot of Haredi societies in particular. Um, because the more Haredi, the more Hasidish, and the more um, insular a society is, um, the more there's a certain um, sense of people towing a line without necessarily thinking that much about it, particularly when the price can be very high. Um, and that's part of the part of the um, part of the structure. What keeps people in is the threat and the fear of what will happen if you allow yourself to make your own decisions or decide things for yourself. I think that in maybe more liberal or, you know, more open societies, um, there is more of a value in teaching your children what's out there. And, you know, they're coming to it from choice, from true commitment. Um, and sometimes they don't. That's that. There's always a risk. There's always a risk to that. Um, so I think that what you're talking about is not necessarily Judaism or Jewish law, but it's a structure within Judaism um, that's that's very much social and cultural. Um, because I would not think it's ideal that women just kind of get married and accidentally kind of without thinking about it, get pregnant because they don't have information and they don't know any better. Um, and that, you know, the ideal of educating, yes, there definitely is a risk of rebellion of not wanting to do it that way. But I, you know, I think that it's better for people to be able to feel like they have, that they're making choices and they're choosing to live with integrity, the way that they want to live and not because they're afraid of what the alternatives might be. Okay. So we're, we're running out of time and I'd like to just address a few more things here before we wrap up. So let's just talk a little bit about female birth control versus male birth control. When do couples get heterim and how do couples deal with not being able to be on hormonal birth control? So is there ever room for leniency for male birth control rather than it just being on the woman? Ever is a long time. So I don't want to say there's never an, a, a possibility of it, but it's quite rare that in general, the issue of spilling seed in vain, 
is a real one. And the problem with a condom, which is typically the male type of birth control I assume you're referring to, the most common form I would assume, would assume is that that is pretty clearly an, an example of that, where it's not the same thing as a person masturbating because he is doing it together with his wife. But on the other hand, according to the post scheme that I know of, having a condom is because the semen doesn't enter into the woman's vagina in any meaningful way. Therefore, it basically is a problem of hotzat zerlevatala, which is halakhically forbidden. Again, ever isn't the only option because there are certain situations where it might be mutar. I have seen them say, I have seen it written that in certain situations, whatever they might be. But in general, it usually does fall upon the woman. And that's an example where Allah, in this case, is asking her to take care of it, to do, if they want to do it, then it's really her job rather than the man's job. Um, as far as I understand it, there might be other examples where, whether it's a spermicide, even though that also is often on the woman too. But on the whole, for better or for worse, I think it generally halakhically would fall upon the woman if they're going to use it, as I understand it. Let's talk about the stigma or removing shame and secrecy around birth control usage. And to take it a step deeper, birth control failure and long-term effects on women. For example, people are thankfully more comfortable talking about infertility and pregnancy loss. However, oops, babies and mother's mental illness post that is not recognized. Can we address this? Can I say one thing first before getting into the – I just actually want to think we should separate two separate things. You mentioned shame and stigma and secrecy. And I think secrecy isn't a bad thing here. Shame and stigma are not good things. But secrecy – let me all change this. Privacy is an important thing. I do not think that this is something which a couple should discuss in public with everybody or, I mean, I guess it's up to them. But having a private conversation about this is actually – very possibly mandated by halacha. It says in the mission in Chagiga that there are certain things you can only speak to one person about. An example of arayot, which means forbidden sexual unions, but I think we can expand it to mean the private the private sex lives of a husband and a wife. If they need help, it can only be spoken about with one person, either if it's halacha, it would be a halachic authority, or if it's for therapy, a psychotherapist or whomever, someone like that. The idea that it would be private, I think, is actually very important. So shame and stigma is one thing, and that's something which I think should be removed. But privacy or secrecy, I'm not so sure that's inherently a negative thing. That's just what I wanted to say about that. Thank you. And what about the other element? <laughs> so let's go back to the shame and stigma around having babies that you weren't ready for or prepared for. And that's not necessarily a Jewish thing. This is an every mother who wasn't ready or did not expect to have a pregnancy and has this baby and how that affects the entire family after that. Right. So I'm sure Tali can speak to this from a professional standpoint. I can say, based on conversations that I've had with quite a number of women who found themselves pregnant when they weren't expecting to be, and that includes several women that I know who got pregnant while having an IUD, which is quite unusual. And I've spoken to a number of doctors about it who say that statistically, I shouldn't know so many women that this has happened to, but I do. And I would say that whether it's in that scenario, which was, it was clear the couple didn't want to have a child, or it was, you know, women who very often are taking some sort type of oral contraceptive or hormonal birth control, where they forgot a pill or something like that, or they weren't so careful, they tried to take it every day, but it wasn't always at the top of their, you know, the top of their agenda. And then that couple ends up, you know, pregnant or like Tali was saying before, you know, a couple who never really thought about it. I don't know any couples like that. I don't think I've ever spoken to a woman who didn't have a call a class or some kind of, even someone, you know, had a meeting with their rabbi or their older sister or a cousin, somebody told them the basics. So, and I, I think even in the Hasidish world where I'm assuming we're, we're assuming that that's the most insular world those girls are not coming to their chuppahs either without basic information. It's not happening from the, from what I can tell. They might not be getting all the information that I try to share with the women that I study with, but the very basics are there. The basics on how a woman gets pregnant are there. And I think in their circles, that's very much what they want to happen. Typically, obviously it doesn't apply to everyone, but it's something that they do want. I don't think it's something that's forced. I think you grow up with something as, you know, your dream and that's, you know, something that, that these couples want. But to the just speak to the point of what happens to these families where they have a pregnancy or a child that they weren't prepared for. And I would say what's much more complicated is situations where I've spoken to women where they're, they did not want to get pregnant. They got pregnant. 
and then subsequently lost the pregnancy. And the amount of guilt that those women and those couples experienced that somehow, because they weren't excited about it, that that somehow led, you know, in pregnancies, we know, unfortunately, so many of them don't come full term. And there are all sorts of things that can go on. And the complication that exists when a a woman feels like somehow it was her fault because she didn't appreciate, she didn't say thank you, Tashem, when she found out she was pregnant. We are talking about some really heavy complicated emotions. And I think it's wonderful to open up this conversation and to let people know these things happen. And that, of course, just like you were saying, Francisca, so beautifully, that now we're getting better at talking about infertility and some of these things that might be private, but certainly don't need to be secret, that this is hopefully maybe one of the next conversations that will be opened. People should never make assumptions that everyone who's pregnant is happy about it. People should never make us, you know, you want to always wait to hear from the couple or the woman, just like you never ask a woman if she's pregnant, right? You don't ever ask her if she's happy that she's pregnant. You kind of want to wait, engage. You just never know what's going on in someone's life in the same way that you don't know if a woman who's pregnant knows that she's carrying a pregnancy that may not make it till the end or where they know they have some kind of genetic situation they're going to have to deal with. This area is so fraught with emotion. It's so complicated. And I think we are always doing our best when we keep our mouths closed and wait for guidance sort of from the person that we're talking to. But yeah, I think it's a great conversation to open up because the issues are very real, sometimes very severe and sometimes more moderate, but they continue for a very long time. Thank you. Thank you for saying this. Tali? Yeah, I I would also add that our experience, I agree with Rifki, and I would add that our experiences as women um, and as men, because fathers certainly have uh, a lot to um, experience themselves. Um, it's not easy <laughs> to be a man and in this society to expect, expects a lot of, of men and they don't, they're not just sitting by the side. I mean, they, every child is also for them, um, you know, another person that, you know, they're fathers and fatherhood is, 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 is very, very meaningful to men. Um, but if we go back to the experience of a woman, it isn't binary. It isn't like I want a child. I don't want a child. I'm happy. I'm unhappy. Um, I think that we need to uh, really acknowledge the the variables. You know that that you could start out unhappy and then be very happy, or start out start out happy um, and then have a lot of anxieties about it. Um, it's it's really it's just not so black and white. And um, sometimes it's clear that there is an unexpected, by the way, sorry that I stopped myself in the middle, but I think it's important to understand that everybody's different and, you know, people have different levels of tolerance for spontaneity and surprise. I'm sure you know this about people. There are people who are, you know, known as control freaks and people who like to be in control of everything. And then there are people who are much more spontaneous. And I'm sure you as a Yoetz at Halacha see this all the time because mikvah and Tarat Mishpacha is one area where if you do have obsessive or compulsive thoughts and behaviors and a lot of a need to control, and of course I see it too as a therapist, um, then then certain things will be easier for you and certain things will be much harder for you. So for a woman who wasn't expecting to get pregnant and she's somebody who likes to be able to plan and control the experience of that pregnancy, it's not so objective that it's a good time or a bad time. It's just a not planned time. And she needs to be able to process that. It's not necessarily something that she's not going to get over. In most cases, we adapt. We're adaptable people and we adapt to the baby. Um, we usually don't want to send the baby back when it's an oops baby. Um, I think more women than not have had an oops, at least one oops baby. And, you know, Hakol Beseder, it's, it, it's uh, most of the time. With that, I think we can't, um, you know, uh, we can't just push away the fact that for some women, it's a very real mourning process to have a baby that they did not expect or want to have. And uh, that requires, sometimes that really does require um, therapy and being able to, to accept yourself with the very complex feelings that you have and to be able to talk about them. Wow. Okay. So I want to thank you all so much for, for joining and participating so beautifully in this panel. 
I feel like I was stumbling over my words because this is a super uncomfortable and new conversation for me to have. I do not have not experienced participating in a conversation like this openly with other people too much. And it's very new. This is new language. And I think it's important to talk about because every woman shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel or couple, every family shouldn't have to reinvent the wheel of the same thoughts that, or the same thoughts that have been going on for generations. Probably there's so much to learn. There's so much awareness and sensitivity to have and to pass along to people. So thank you for allowing me to create this environment. And I'm really excited for the for the episode that Rabbi Scott and Tali are going to have on birth control in much more depth, I think, both in halakha and the mental health space. So yeah, we'll wrap up with this. Any final thoughts you'd like to add before we close up? I want to say call a kavod to you. Yeah, I was going to say the same thing. Thank you for having this panel. I <laughs> yeah. think this is, again, opening up conversations that people need to have. Agreed. Thank Agreed you. 100%. And the uh, Health and Halacha Conference, I did a discussion with my husband and with Diana Melnick, who is a sex therapist in Toronto. And it was, as, as I introduced the panel, I was able to articulate something that was very important to me, and it sounds like it's very important to you, which was that this was a conversation that I specifically wanted to have with my husband in public, because he's a rabbinic, he's a rabbi, a rabbinic figure. And I wanted people to get the message, both women and men, that this is a conversation that can happen and should happen, doesn't have to happen publicly. But let's start the conversation publicly for the people who that's where it's going to stay. And hopefully, hopefully, though, it will open conversations in people's homes, and with their rabbinic figures, their mentors, their rebbitzins, their yoetzets, whoever it is that they talk to, just to know these are conversations that can happen and should happen. Because all all that we all want is to support each other and to be able to build healthy Jewish homes. And that's a complicated endeavor. And so to open this conversation is really halakavot to you. I'm so grateful that you included me. And uh, I look forward to hearing more about this topic. Thank you. Friend, thank you so much for listening until the end. And if you enjoyed, please tell a friend, leave a review, and make sure to subscribe so you get a notification the next time an episode is out. Have you been thinking of launching a podcast? Great. Let me help you launch and produce your show and take the headache away. Just click on the link in the show notes and make sure to tune in next time. See ya. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.